I follow bike racing, like the Tour de France. We already got laughter down here. It's a strong start. <clears throat> like the Tour de France uh, and other races like those. I follow all those races, all those riders. I'm really into that. And I know that's kind of lame to some of you. It's not nearly as dignified a sport as football. Um, so anyways, one of the cycling journalists that I've been reading for years and years is a really prominent cycling journalist. In fact, he, he's written some landmark stories in that world, even if it's kind of a small world. He once confronted the leader of the Tour de France race with allegations of doping, cheating with drugs. He's kind of a, a big deal. And so I was listening to a podcast with him. And in this podcast, he, he tells the interviewer who's interviewing him after his 20 years of cycling journalism, he says, I'm thinking about doing something else. And the interviewer says, like, like what? Like writing some different kinds of stories? And he says, no, no, I'm thinking of doing something totally different with my life. He says, I had a daughter a couple of years ago, and ever since she, she came around, I've been asking myself, does this, what I'm doing really matter? You know, am I making the world a better place for my daughter? And so I'm thinking I might, you know, go into like environmental stuff or something, or maybe become an advocate for, for more bike lanes and safer bike lanes on the road. But I don't know. I just, I want my life to matter, he said. <clears throat> I was struck by that. I think that is a fundamental human longing that we all want our lives to matter. You know, even a non-believer like him does not want to reach the end of his life and look back on it and think, well, that was kind of a waste. We want our lives to matter. I think that God hardwired that desire into us. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are created for the praise of his glory, God's glory. In chapter two, he gets a little more specific and he says this, Paul says this, he says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then at the beginning of our passage for today, Ephesians chapter four, he says it like this. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So how do I live a worthy life? You know, every graduation speaker in history has tried to tackle that question. Young people, as you're about to graduate, you're asking yourself, how is my life going to matter? How do I live a worthy life? Well, let me tell you the secret. Here's the secret. Do something that makes you happy. Work a job you enjoy and you'll never regret a day in your life. That's what your graduation speaker told you. You probably remember sitting there with that tassel hanging in front of your face and some famous or semi-famous person in your community came and said, if you want to live a worthy life, if you don't want to have any regrets, do something that makes you happy, which is easy for the rich and famous to say. But why are most of their lives train wrecks? Why is that? Right? Something doesn't cohere here with what they're saying. But behind their worldview and what they're saying in those graduation speeches is actually what, what some are calling an, its own religion. The Atlantic magazine, the secular magazine, wrote this about that idea. They said this, the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided 
with an explosion of new atheisms. And he's about to explain that. <clears throat> Some people worship beauty. Some worship political identities. And others worship their children. But everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants, you and me. What is workism? It's the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but is also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. Okay, let me tell you something. This is a lie. This is a big, fat, stinking lie, is what that is, right? And you, you're probably going to have to have a job. Okay, in Ephesians 4, Paul says this. He says, everyone must work doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. You're going to have to have a job. And I think your job, whatever your job is, can bring glory to God. I think your job can make the world a better place. But listen to this. The worth of your life is not based on your job. Young people, let me talk to you for a second here. If you're young, I want you to make me a promise if you're a young person. I want you to forget everything your graduation speaker is going to tell you. <laughs> Unless it's me. <laughs> then I want you to applaud frequently. <clears throat> okay, young people, if you want to live a worthy life, you want me to tell you the secret? Go to church. If you want your life to matter, Spend your life, whatever your job is, spend your life building up the body of Christ. Give your whole self to the church and you will not look back on your life when it ends and regret a second of it if you give your life to the church. And I'm not making this up. I didn't talk to your grandparents. They didn't ask me to say, tell you to go to church. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, look, look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter four. Let's turn in verse one. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me ask you, if you just leave that up on the screen for a second, who is the one another in that third line? Well, look in the fourth line. It's the one body. What's he talking about? The body of Christ, the church. That's what Ephesians is about, the church, right? Okay, well, notice that all the qualities that he lists that make up a worthy life and how different those are from the qualities the world lists. You know, the world tells you if you want to live a worthy life, you need to be successful, you need to be wealthy, you need to be happy. Well, you can be all those things on your own. But Paul says if you want to live a worthy life, you are going to need another, <laughs> You're going to need one another. You're going to need qualities that only exist in community. Humility, patience, gentleness, bearing with one another. You can't bear with one another by yourself. To live a worthy life, you're going to have to have community. And he's not talking about your bowling league or your softball team or your quilting club. He's talking about the one body, the church. Okay, a worthy life cannot exist apart from the body. 
Let me go on. This is what Paul says in verse 7. To each one of us, a grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. To each one of us, a grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is why it said when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. Let me pause here again. Paul uses the very same language about himself one chapter earlier. In chapter 3, Paul says this about himself. He says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Okay, what did God's gracious gift do to Paul? It made him a servant. Okay, Paul describes you and I in Ephesians as dead in our transgressions and sins. The gift of God's grace is that God takes the same power he used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and he raises you, he takes hold of us and he raises you and I by that gift of God's grace. But the gift comes with a requirement. I have made you a servant, Paul says. And so Paul, he he is not the only one who's been made a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace. He then turns around in chapter four and he says, each of us have received the gift of God's grace. So what does that make us? Servants of the gospel. That's your identity. No matter what your job is, your identity is a servant of the gospel. That's your real identity, okay? But he goes on, he says this. When he ascended, what does, sorry, he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He's talking about Christ taking on flesh in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. That's chapter one of Ephesians. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants who are tossed back and forth by the waves, who are blown here and there, by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body, one body, of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Okay, notice in these two passages, and there's one passage, two slides, sorry. Notice the vision of the church that he supplies. You know, the church is this thing that's growing. It's growing from infancy to maturity. The church isn't shrinking. It isn't becoming more immature. The church is growing in a maturity. And to help with that, did you notice what God gives the church? A minister. I just wanted to point that out. (laughs) It's one of the reasons we're going to celebrate Chris and Kendra this afternoon, because they have helped us over these years to become more more mature. But specifically, what he says is that the minister is given to equip you for works of service. Now, when you read that, what you think is, okay, the minister's job is to design for me service projects. 
No. What it actually says is the minister's job is to equip you for the work of service. There's not an S on the end of it. My job is to make you view your whole life as the work of service to the gospel. Okay, and what is who or what are you serving and doing that? Well, Paul says in verse 12, you are doing that. The body of Christ is committed to this work, this whole life of service so that the body of Christ may be built up and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. That's verse 12, chapter four, verse 12. This is a worthy life. A life spent building up the church into what it is called to be. That's a worthy life. So let me talk to our young people again for a second. If you want to live a worthy life, young people, go to church. And I know that right now it seems like there's nowhere else you'd rather be on a Sunday. You know, you're involved in HYG or the children's ministry, and you're getting all this deep and rich spiritual nourishment. But let me just tell you, a time is coming when you may not want to be here on Sunday morning. You know, you're going to have kids of your own. I know that's hard to believe, but you probably will. And they're going to keep you up late, and you're not going to want to be here on Sunday morning. And you're going to have soccer practices on Sunday and tournaments out of town. And, and you're going to have that lake house you really want to go to. You're going to have that tea time on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. I know that's hard to believe, but let me make you a promise because I have lived it. There's going to come this moment when you don't want to be here. This happens for me sometimes. I remember vividly about three and a half years ago, our son Foster was sick, our second son. And it's Saturday night, and so I start bouncing him. You know, he's so sick, he can't breathe. And when kids breathe, it's, you can't lay him down flat. And if they could only blow their noses, right? Why can't they blow their noses? And so you, you hold them kind of up like this. You just do that bounce thing. And I'm bouncing. I'll never forget that night. I watched this Western documentary about these boys from Texas who, who ride these horses from Mexico to Canada. And the documentary ended and I'm just bouncing. And so I try to reach to turn it to something else and I can't. So I try to do it with my toe and I accidentally started over. And I just watched it again. <laughs> I'll never forget. I'm bouncing like this and about 2 a.m. I knew I had to hand them off if I was going to get up. And I, I hand them off to Lindsay and I go to sleep. And I get up about 5.30 to come up here to preach. And I will never forget that. You know why? Because I did not want to be here. You know where I wanted to be? In bed. I wanted to be in bed. And when people ask me, Eric, what's your favorite sermon you have ever preached? I don't think about it for a second. It was that Sunday morning. Because I experienced the grace of God in a way I'll never forget. Because I was depleted. I didn't want to be here. And my sermon was not fancy. You didn't laugh a lot at, at it. But I'll never forget it because I was filled with the grace of God. Why? Because God is not going to waste any of our effort for his body. You know, some of you feel distant from God. Well, let me ask you, what are you doing for the body? Because I guarantee you, if you give your life in the service of his body, he's going to show up. You are going to experience that grace. If you want to live a worthy life, give your life to the church, young people. Let me talk to those of you who are not so young. 
There's a, another word for that. We'll just go with not so young. <laughs> and um, because Paul doesn't just want young people to live a worthy life. He wants everybody to live a worthy life. 20 years ago, one of the most important sermons in American history was preached in Memphis, Tennessee. It was preached at Shelby Farms. There was 40,000 young people that came to hear it. And this young, relatively unknown preacher at the time named John Piper preached a famous sermon called the Seashells Sermon. Anybody ever heard this sermon? Anybody there? There that day? All right. I've got some theological disagreements with, with Piper, but he's a great man of God. And he preached this sermon. And in this sermon, talking to 40,000 young people at Shelby Farms, just scattered across the lawn at Shelby Farms, he begins preaching. He tells two stories. And the first story he tells is of two women, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards, two members of his church in their 80s. They were both medical workers. Ruby had been single her whole life. Laura was widowed. And they left and went to Africa, to Cameroon, and began mission work, medical mission work in Africa in their 80s. And he says in the seashell sermon, as he's talking to these 40,000 young people, he said, three weeks ago, we got word that Laura Edwards and Ruby Eliason were driving between villages in Cameroon, and the, the brakes went out in their car, and they flew over a cliff and died instantly. And he asked that crowd, he says, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s almost, who have devoted their whole lives to one thing, Jesus Christ magnified. These two women fly into eternity with death in a moment. Is this a tragedy? He says, no. Let me read you what a tragedy is. And he holds up a copy of Reader's Digest. And he laughs because he knows nobody in this audience reads Reader's Digest. And he said, let me read you what a tragedy he is. He says, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect seashells. This is a tragedy, he said. And everyone knew he was right. Young or not so young, you're called to live a worthy life. And I'm all for you going and picking up some seashells when you retire, but let me tell you, that better not be all you do. You better give your life to the church if you want your life to matter. Because I guarantee you, at the end of your life, you will not hold up that bag of shells and think, well, this was worth it. But everything you did for the body, you will know was worthy. We were in a Wednesday night Bible class a few nights ago, and it was a, about the Old Testament. The class was on the Old Testament, and um, the teacher was talking about a passage in the Old Testament, and Barry Mitchell, one of our elders, raised his hand, and he said, that, that passage reminds me of Miss Betty Cannon. Some of y'all know Betty Cannon here. He said, Miss Betty Cannon was my Sunday school teacher. And she taught me this, and I'll never forget that. And I just think about what a difference Miss Betty Cannon has made in my life. And Betty said, oh, hush. <laughs> she was blushing. She was in the class. And after class, Miss Betty walked up to me out here in the hall outside the chapel. And she put her arms around me, and I said, Miss Betty, you kind of stole the show tonight. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a generation younger than Barry, 20, 25 years or so. And 
he was talking, standing there talking to me, and I began to tell him about how Barry had mentioned Miss Betty teaching Sunday school for him all those years ago. And my friend says, well, Miss Betty, you taught me in Sunday school too. He says, you taught me that Ten Commandments song. Do you remember that Ten Commandments song, Miss Betty? And he starts singing it right there in the hallway. And she says, oh, hush. (laughs) Now, do you think Miss Betty is ever going to regret those decades she spent teaching Sunday school? I think she's going to reach the end of her life and look back on those and regret those times. I think about uh, Mike Whiteside and Mark and Carrie Bullock and others who make our coffee on Sunday mornings. The coffee you drink, it doesn't appear magically over there. It gets made. You think Mike's going to reach the end of his life and ever regret getting up early on Sundays and doing that? You know, Miss Marva Johnson, she gets here every Sunday morning. She puts the cookies you eat by the coffee pot. She buys those herself, and she brings them, and she puts them by the coffee pot. And Charlie Maxwell gets all our links out and ready to go, and he puts those peppermints you're going to go eat before you hug the brethren, right? He puts those out. You think he's ever going to regret that? Think he's ever going to regret that? Do you think Randy Gaddy and Rance Reagan, who went to Papua New Guinea to encourage our missionaries, or, or David Rawson, who's been to Ukraine over a hundred times, do you think they're ever going to reach their end of their life and regret those trips? Do you think Miss Ann Cernka, who goes to Chick-fil-A every Wednesday night to pick up nuggets for our youth group, do you think she's ever going to regret all those stops at Chick-fil-A? You think Susie Buford or Michelle Griffith are ever going to regret all those milkshakes they made on Wednesday nights for our youth group kids? You think they're ever going to look back at the end of their life and regret all those times they sat by the blender making those milkshakes? You think they're going to regret that ever? You think Kevin and Shelby Betts or Alex and Miranda Guy are ever going to regret all those Bible studies they hosted in their homes on Wednesday night for young adults who are trying to figure out what it means to live a worthy life. And Kevin and Alex and their wives, they're tired. They don't want to have everybody over to their house late on Wednesday night. You think they're ever going to look back at the end of their life and regret those times? You think Doug Burris is ever going to regret the months he spent designing this church building? Months he spent. You think he's ever going to look back when he sees all the good that happens in this place every week? Do you think he's ever going to look back on that and regret it? You think Breeshan and Jill Hatcher, you think they're ever going to regret that time they let this young adult from Highland come live with them for a couple months because his life was off the rock or he was in the deep end? They just let him come stay with them and Breeshan would have to stay up till midnight talking to this guy because he's a talker and he would be up with him late every night talking to him. And now he's thriving. He's doing so. You think he's ever going to look back and regret that way he blessed this brother in Christ? You think Judy Shapley or Sean Prine or the Frizzells are ever going to look back on all those VVS puppet shows they did for 20 plus years? You think they're ever going to look back on those and think, well, that was a waste. I sure regret that. You think they're ever going to look back and regret that? You think Miss Beverly Midyet is ever going to regret all the times she has held crying babies in the nursery so that their mama could for one precious moment try to hear a word from God for her? Do you think she's ever going to regret that? No. I think each of them will look back on those things and think, that was worthy. That was worthy. 
And indeed it was. You want to live a worthy life? Give it to the church. Let's stand and sing together. If you haven't given your life to Christ this morning, it's the time to start. I'd love to baptize you, to bring you into this body, into his body this morning. If you'd like prayer, let me pray with you, either in the back or down here, down front. We're going to sing a song together, and then we're going to do something special in just a moment. So let's sing. This is my desire to honor.